If you are a mid-sized merchant that is doing wire transfers and the wire transfer is costing them 50 to 100 dollars and you can only do it Monday to Friday, nine to five during banking hours. And all of a sudden you can do something that has instant settlement and is dollar denominated and works 24 seven, you're just gonna go there. Welcome to Bankless, where we explore the frontier of internet money and internet finance. This is how to get started, how to get better, and how to front run the opportunity. This is Ryan Sean Adams, and I'm here with David Hoffman, and we're here to help you become more bankless. Guys, we've had a thesis on Bankless for quite a while on how we get to 1 billion crypto users worldwide. We call it the DeFi mullet thesis. That's right, DeFi mullet. That's fintech in the front, DeFi in the back. And basically, the idea is fintech will help onboard the world to crypto. And there is no bigger fintech company than PayPal. So our guest today is Jose Fernandez de Ponte. He's from PayPal. He's a senior executive. He leads all of their crypto and blockchain initiatives. And he wants to tell us what the 400 million PayPal accounts can do with crypto right now. We talk about that. We talk about the future of CDBCs, stablecoins, and the regulatory headwinds crypto is facing right now. A few takeaways for you. Number one, what does PayPal see in crypto? Why are they developing on it? Number two, we talk about what PayPal's 400 million accounts can do with crypto today. Is this the front door to a bankless money system? Number three, we talk about how to get to $1 trillion worth of stablecoins. We got a ways to go, but Jose has a plan. Number four, we talk about the role of CDBCs in a world of highly successful stablecoins. Can CDBCs and crypto coexist? Number five, we talk about Jose's contrarian views on crypto regulation, the environment that we're in the US, and why he sees this environment actually as a glass half full. It's not all bad news. And David, maybe my favorite part of this episode is we just got the senior vice president of PayPal to say the words DeFi mullet, <laughs> I think twice in this episode. So I enjoyed that as well. What's the significance of this one? It was really refreshing to hear Jose say that PayPal is here in crypto based on its merits. Hmm. And I mean, it makes sense. PayPal is a for-profit company that has shareholders that needs to do right by its shareholders. It's not going to adopt crypto for some ideological reason. God, who would be so crazy to do that? PayPal is going to adopt crypto because it provides a certain set of unique services and product offerings to what PayPal wants. And that's why PayPal is here in crypto. And there are also... I'm sure, paying attention to CBDCs as part of this conversation of this podcast. I'm sure they're also paying attention to FedNow and other payment and money innovations. Yet, they are paying attention to crypto. And perhaps, perhaps according to Jose, you'll have to find out by listening to the episode, paying attention to crypto the most. Hmm. Because crypto is the best and furthest <laughs> along in all of these things. Or at least that's just my bias. But hearing that PayPal is here for their own benefit and crypto is here to service them, is a nice perspective to bring. The other thing that we didn't talk about this, and I want to talk about in the debrief, Ryan, is that on that same vein, in that same vein, PayPal is adopting crypto's payment rails to facilitate payments. But it's also letting you touch Bitcoin and Ether, mm -hmm. other monies mm -hmm. in of its same merit. So what does that mean when PayPal lets you touch Bitcoin and Ether? Because maybe that's just what people want. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's another conversation of just like, not only is PayPal a, a fintech for payments, but now it is also allowing for the expression of who wants to choose what money they want to express their moneyness desires in. Little did they know PayPal is allowing people to choose Bitcoin and Ether, even though they are a payments company. I thought that was pretty interesting. I express 
all of my moneyness desires in crypto. Let me tell you that. And I can't wait to talk to you more about that. <laughs> tell me about your moneyness desires, sure. brother. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure we're going to talk, saying the words DeFi mullet more than a few times in that debrief as well. Of course, the debrief is the episode that David and I are going to record right now, right after the episode that gives you the highlights and our thoughts on what we just heard. So stay tuned for that. If you are a bankless citizen, you have access to the bankless premium feed. If you're not a citizen, just upgrade. Click the link in the show notes. Press button. Add the premium RSS feed. You can get access to that right now. Okay, we're going to get right to the episode with Jose. But before we do, we want to thank the sponsors that made this possible, including our number one recommended exchange. That's Kraken. Go create an account. Kraken has been a leader in the crypto industry for the last 12 years. Dedicated to accelerating the global adoption of crypto, Kraken puts an emphasis on security, transparency, and client support, which is why over 9 million clients have come to love Kraken's products. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, the Kraken UX is simple, intuitive, and frictionless, making the Kraken app a great place for all to get involved and learn about crypto. For those with experience, the redesigned Kraken Pro app and web experience is completely customizable to your trading needs, integrating key trading features into one seamless interface. Kraken has a 24-7, 365 client support team that is globally recognized. Kraken support is available wherever, whenever you need them, by phone, chat, or email. And for all of you NFTers out there, the brand new Kraken NFT beta platform gives you the best NFT trading experience possible. Rarity rankings, no gas fees, and the ability to buy an NFT straight with cash. Does your crypto exchange prioritize its customers the way that Kraken does? And if not, sign up with Kraken at Kraken bankless. Introducing ETHX from Stater. ETHX is a liquid staking token designed to maximize rewards all while securing Ethereum. With Stater, you can run an Ethereum node with just 4 ETH, which is 85% lower capital and 35% higher rewards versus solo staking. Stater has a multi-pool architecture with permissionless and permission node operators to enable decentralization and scalability. Stater has extensive experience in building liquid staking protocols on six proof-of-stake blockchains and is trusted by over 70,000 stakers. Stater has partnered with over 40 leading protocols to bring DeFi utility to their liquid staking tokens. Stater is actively building integrations across the Ethereum ecosystem to bring the same great DeFi utility to the EtherX token. With a million dollars of SD token rewards in DeFi, force ETHX users. All of Stater's smart contracts are audited by at least two independent cybersecurity auditors and have multi-million dollar bug bounties currently live. So go to staterlabs.com ETH to sign up and get access to the Stater staking protocol. Hiring people worldwide Wide, paying them in crypto, providing them access to benefits. It all so complex, but it doesn't have to be. Complying with labor laws, payroll rules, tax obligations, and crypto regulations in every country that you employ someone is difficult, time-consuming, manual, and costly, and it's drawing more and more attention from regulators and governments. But there is good news. Toku is here. Toku is the first employment and compensation platform for the crypto industry that makes this easy. Toku helps you hire employees or contractors and pay them in fiat or crypto crypto legally, compliantly, and with all the taxes handled in over a hundred different jurisdictions. So whether you're an early stage company with just a team of two, or you're an enterprise with 200, Toku has a solution that meets your needs. Toku is already working with the leading companies in the space, Protocol Labs, Hedera, Gitcoin, and many more. So transform your employment and token payroll operations with Toku. You can reach out to Toku at toku.com bankless, or click the link in the show notes. Bankless Nation, I'm super excited to introduce you to Jose Fernandez de Ponte. He is the Senior Vice President of Blockchain, Crypto, and Digital Currencies 
at PayPal. PayPal plus Venmo, of course, one and the same. He drives the company's efforts to bring the utility of crypto assets and crypto networks to millions of global customers. Certainly have seen PayPal doing a lot in the space. He also knows a thing or two about how the banking system works, how it's broken, and maybe has some insights in terms of how to fix it. Jose, welcome to Bankless. Great to be here. Nice to be with you, Ryan and David. It's great to be with you. We've wanted to have this conversation with somebody from PayPal and you know yourself for quite some time, so I'm glad we could arrange this. I figured we could maybe break this into two parts for bankless listeners. And part one is just try to figure out what PayPal is doing with crypto right now. And then part two, maybe you could give some wider insights, the 30,000-foot view, in terms of what is actually broken about global banking. Maybe we could talk stablecoins, CDBCs, and crypto's role in all of this. Does that sound okay? Absolutely. Let's do that. You know, first though, Jose, I have a 101 level question, all right? And this is my own kind of kindergarten level curiosity. Can you tell me what a dollar is in PayPal? So being in crypto for as long as I have, I feel like I have a pretty good understanding of what a USDC, what a stablecoin actually is and what it's backed by. Because we've had to study that in crypto, right? We've had stablecoin failings. We've learned about undercollateralized stablecoins and algorithmic stablecoins. We see sort of USDC and its balance sheet. We kind of know maybe a little bit what's backing Tether. What about a dollar in PayPal? What is that backed by? Yeah, absolutely. Happy to do that. And, and it's funny because sometimes we internally in the team, we like to joke that if we were starting PayPal all over again now, maybe we would call the PayPal balance and stablecoin in a permission <laughs> environment, right? Because it's pretty much what it is. It is it is electronic money. We'll talk about this when we discuss international, but it's, Europe has this concept of electronic money that I think that is really helpful for what we're trying to discuss. So when you have a dollar in your PayPal balance, that is backed by funds that are held in bank accounts for the benefit of that user. So we'll talk about banking later. But there is no rehypothecation of assets. There's nothing like that. The money sits on the bank. It's there for when a user wants to redeem a dollar in PayPal balance and take it out to their bank account again. So, Jose, every dollar in PayPal is backed one-to-one -one with a dollar somewhere in a bank account. Is that correct? That is correct. And like, what yeah. banks does PayPal use? Because that's come into play, too. And we've talked about USDC. Do you use some of the larger banks all over the world? There is a number of banks. As a company, we operate in 200 markets. So they... The treasury and the banking relationships that we have is international. And I don't think that we have, and I couldn't tell you at the top of my mind, the names of the banks. Our treasury team deals with that, but we are active globally. And again, I think that we are one of the few financial institutions that I know that is active in 200 markets. So is the business model of PayPal just pretty similar for all the crypto people? More or less the same thing as USDC, where you have funds, dollars in a bank, many banks across the world, across the financial system, and then you have representations of those dollars as ledgers that are presented on you know, mobile or a web browser? Is that kind of the very quick summary of it? I would say more than that, PayPal, what is at, at its heart is a payments company, mm -hmm. right? So the, the origin of, of PayPal came from peer-to-peer -peer money movement, but then eventually became a way in which you wanted to do a transaction in an e-commerce environment. And remember the, the good old days of early internet and the New Yorker cartoon that nobody knows you're a dog in internet. So it was definitely a trust problem and people wanted to buy online from other parties, but they didn't want to provide their credit cards and they didn't want to deliver more information that they wanted. So in essence, 
PayPal grew to ensure the trust and the confidence when you were doing an, an e-commerce transaction. Mm -hmm. So let's get to crypto now, Jose, because I know PayPal is doing a lot with crypto now, and it sounds like you are one of the key leaders of that charge. Let's start with just this basic question. I'm sure a lot of bankless listeners have an app called Venmo mm -hmm. or have an account with PayPal. If I log into my Venmo app right now, what can I do with crypto? So what you can do, the story that we have been in crypto, PayPal has been in crypto probably for the best part of the last four years. I myself have been in crypto probably since 2015, back in my banking days. And the way, when we started, the first thing that you could do with PayPal and with Venmo, initially with PayPal only, and then it extended to Venmo, was to buy, hold, and sell a few tokens. So you could get into PayPal or you could get into Venmo way back in 2021 and 2020, and you could buy a few tokens. You could buy... Bitcoin and ETH and Litecoin and Bitcoin Cash. And you can still do that to this day. It was a custodial experience and it was a, an experience in which the user would only buy from PayPal and sell back to PayPal. So you could not do on-chain transfers. And the reason we started there is because we thought that, there were, that we helped the ecosystem in three places. And one of the places where we help is access. So there was a lot of users who were intrigued about crypto but they didn't want to get into detail of what SHA-256 cryptography is and horror wallets and this and that. And they didn't want, quite frankly, to give their banking details to some exchange out there that they didn't know and were not familiar with. But they liked the PayPal brand and they trusted the PayPal brand. So the first thing that we said is, okay, let's provide a gateway experience, a custodial experience for folks who are curious about crypto, but not very sophisticated and want to have their, their first experience. That's why we started there. And by and large, that has been very successful. Even today, many of the folks who do transactions with us, we are their first uh, crypto experience. And, and again, I think that that's part. Remember that we have more than 400 million accounts worldwide. So as part of driving mainstream adoption into crypto, I think that ourselves and other platforms are an important gateway for people to engage. Then we started, we moved from PayPal to Venmo. We opened the UK as our first international market. Maybe the most important relevant milestone after that was last year when we enabled on-chain transfers, because that was the first time that from a PayPal wallet, you were able to connect with an external crypto wallet. And that triggered a bunch of things. So if you think in terms of network theory, so you have now 400 million accounts on the PayPal and Venmo ecosystem. You have, you know, we'll know better than I do, but let's say more than 100 million crypto wallets out there which were separate. There was no connectivity between those PayPal wallets and those crypto wallets. When we enabled on-chain transfers last year, basically you were building a bridge between the 400 and the 100. And that means a number of things. First, if you believe in network theory, the value of a network grows with the square of the number of nodes. So adding, going from 100 to 400 million connected networks adds value to the ecosystem. The second thing that it means is anyone with a PayPal wallet is at most two degrees of separation to anyone with an external crypto wallet. And we think that is something that is extremely, extremely relevant. Mm. And that led to a bunch of different things. One of them is first use case, casual users who wanted to double into crypto for the first time. When we open on-chain transfers that we launched on PayPal last year, and we just announced that we have just opened that on, on Venmo, then all of a sudden we have that role as an on-ramp and an off-ramp to crypto. So we see more and more People who come to PayPal, they say, hey, I want to buy ETH, not because I want to bet on the price of ETH or keep it in custody at PayPal. I want to buy ETH because I want to send it to MetaMask or I want to go and buy NFTs or I want to go and do DeFi. And the experience, you know very well, the experience for fiat to crypto on ramps is pretty clunky. 
there are uh, and it's expensive, and there are a bunch of steps that you need to take. So now we have a population of people who are dabbling with crypto and getting used to it, which is fantastic. And then a population of fairly sophisticated users that what we're demanding from us is, hey, we want easy, cheap, fast on-ramps between fiat and crypto. And that led to the next thing that we are doing now, which is integrating PayPal in the properties where crypto users go. We launched our first integration with MetaMask a, a few months ago, which has been very successful as well. And there are all sorts of things that now the market is moved from us, from more on-ramps to off-ramps to different ways to connect the fiat and the Web3 world. The way that we see our role is in building that conduit. We don't play at the protocol level. We don't think it's our role to be driving the protocols. We do believe that we play on the application layer and on the user experience layer. So when PayPal looks towards the world of blockchain, obviously money and payments payments are very, very close to what PayPal does. How would you summarize what PayPal sees as its position in this space? We have hooks into MetaMask. We're making stable coins and crypto transfers easier. But how would you summarize in totality what the actual PayPal strategy is for hooking into these blockchains? Yeah. So the reason that we are in the digital currency space is because we believe that a relevant part of payments and commerce will move to digital currencies. And that is digital currencies writ large. So cryptocurrencies, fiat-backed stable coins, even CBDCs. And if you are a payments company at heart, you cannot just see that one out. I think that is the first time I've been in payments for the best part of the last 20 years. And this is the first time that I've seen technology that can radically transform payment rates. For all the innovation that has happened in fintech over the last, yes, 20 years, most of it, is just better user experience on the same traditional financial rails. And this is the first time that I've seen something that can actually revamp and rebuild those payment rails. If you look at what I'm the most interested in is programmable, fast, low-cost payments. And if you look at some of the information that others have published, the colleagues at Circle published some information on their transaction cost. And I think that we're saying, depending on the protocol, they were looking at a transaction cost of one cent per transaction. When we have been kicking the tires of some of the latest protocols, we have been doing transactions with a cost of one hundred of a cent per transaction. And if you think that the cost of payments in general is about 200 basis points, if you are able to run transactions at one cent per transaction or one tenth of a cent per transaction, then there is a bunch of stuff that you could not do in payments before that you can do now. You can do micro payments. You can do streaming payments. You can open a channel between the three of us and charge a flat fee and just move value back and forth. You can do business models that were not possible with the old traditional financial rates. And that's the reason that we were so intrigued by it. There's something I think kind of interesting and also refreshing about that posture, which I feel like is PayPal, and maybe we could generalize this to other fintechs, are just looking to the market for solutions. There's sort of a neutrality about this where you guys are saying, we just want programmable, fast, low-cost payments. We don't care whether that comes from a CDBC or that comes from the traditional banking system or that comes from stable coins or that comes from crypto. We will adopt the technology that gets us the best programmable, fastest, lowest-cost payment technology period, and we'll try anything. I think that is the posture that you guys are taking. Is that accurate, Jose? That is accurate. We're coming at this with a very non, I would say, non-ideologic position. So we're, we're in it for the payments aspect, and we think that is what is driving us. I also think there is a little bit of 
that fallacy of the use case. And I'm sure that you and many of your guests in the show face that question every day that I face, which is people asking, but why do you need a blockchain to do this? And why do you need stable coins if you have credit cards? And why do you need... Well, I think that is the wrong question to, to ask, and uh, both on the commercial side and on the regulatory side, because it's, it's a little bit of turtles all the way down, right? You, you, where do you stop? You say, why do you need planes if you have horses? And why do you need wheels if you have feet? So at some point in time, the question should not be about why. The burden of the proof is not on the new technology to prove why. It's on the other side to say, hey, why not? In which cases you cannot apply this technology because there are risks associated to, to it. But the use cases keep popping up. And I'm sure that if I were in the gaming business, I would bring you a bunch of use cases around gaming on the payment side. And I don't think, quite frankly, that you will see the early adoption of digital currencies for payments on mainstream e-commerce payments. I don't think that the next thing that's going to happen is that folks are going to go to a large traditional e-commerce website and, and start paying with crypto assets. We have enabled crypto at checkout as a funding instrument in PayPal for the last three years. And what that means is if you have a Bitcoin or ETH balance with us and you go to a new website and you click the PayPal blue button because you want to buy anything, you will be shown your payment instruments, your debit card, your bank account, whatever you have with us. And if you have a crypto balance, you will see your crypto balance. And you can click there and pay with your crypto balance. And what we do in the background is we sell the crypto, we get the fiat, and we give the merchant the fiat. It's a flow that exists. Not a ton of people use it. I don't think that mainstream users are thinking of their crypto holdings as a way to, to pay. But what I do think that we will see adoption quickly is, first, where it is today. I think that there is proof of existence, right? There is 120 billion or so of stable coins already out there that mostly get used on the crypto trading ecosystem. I do believe that we will see adoption in a bunch of verticals that are really, really ripe for that. Gaming is one that we follow very closely because it has some characteristics that make it really interesting for a digitally native currency. There are pockets of cross-border e-commerce, meaning I am in Peru and I want to buy from a merchant in the US, but I don't have an internationally enabled credit card. You see some of the, of the crypto payment service providers are mostly looking at those use cases. And I do think that you will see that on, on B2B payments at scale relatively quickly. Because if you are a, a company that has to play a supplier in Indonesia and you have an instrument that is 24-7, dollar-denominated, instant settlement outside of banking hours, it's a very rational decision to go and, and use that. To your point, Ryan, what you were saying, it's less about the ideology and more about the hard utility of something that is a better tool in the toolbox. I like that. And I also want to emphasize the opportunity here for folks that just missed this. And I'm speaking on behalf of crypto natives who are very excited maybe about the future adoption of crypto and what we would call on bankless, bankless technologies, Jose, which is what you just said is, did I get this right, Jose? You guys between PayPal and Venmo have over 400 million users. Is that correct? I have 400 million accounts. accounts. I have several accounts myself. Sure, sure. Okay. So 400 million accounts. And now there is the ability across both PayPal and Venmo and those 400 million accounts, there has been the ability to buy, hold, and sell crypto assets like Ether or Bitcoin. Now there is the ability over the last year or so to transfer those assets from PayPal or from Venmo to a non-custodial crypto wallet, what we would call in bankless, a bankless wallet. So guess what, guys? What we just created 
is a back door, okay? <laughs> what we just created here is an onboarding mechanism from the fintech systems like PayPal directly to a self-sovereign crypto wallet. And we got the network effect that PayPal already has in place. I mean, that is incredible when it comes to adoption potential. Now, of course, crypto has the task to make its non-custodial wallets a whole lot easier and for people to want to do that. And I think that's the task ahead of us. But what we've called this, Jose, internally at Bankless for a while, we've been kind of predicting this for the past you know, two or three years or so. We've called it the DeFi mullet. Okay, which is basically the idea that, you know, it's fintech in the front and DeFi in the back, like the parties in the back, crypto in the back. And we've kind of predicted that fintech would take this path because they are neutral in the sense that they are just looking for the best payments technology out there. So they'll use the banking system they can, they'll use a CDBC if they can, or they'll use crypto rails if they can and if it's better. And that seems to be the case. And I just want to emphasize for bankless listeners, this hasn't fully been activated because we don't have 400 million users with crypto wallets yet, but there's that potential, okay? Now we have the gate open, if you will. And to me, that is absolutely incredible. So that was more a comment rather than a question, Jose. I don't know if you'd have anything to add to that though. It gets me excited. Yeah, and I wouldn't call it a backdoor. I think it's a front door. I think that the mm. crypto ecosystem needs uh, onboarding and offboarding and connectivity. I don't think that fiat is going away. We just need to make sure that you can build, that you can get in and out quickly. One example you were talking about the DeFi mullet. Well, I'll give you one interesting case. Now we have Crypto assets that you can hold on PayPal wallets, crypto assets that you can hold on Venmo wallets, and we you have on-chain transfers. One of the things that that enables is PayPal acquired Venmo, I think it's probably eight years ago. So PayPal and Venmo have been sister wallets for the last eight years. And for those eight years, you could not move value between a PayPal wallet and a Venmo wallet. <laughs> they were not connected. They existed in their own worlds. Today, you can send value from a Venmo wallet to a PayPal wallet using crypto rails, hmm. which is something that is is one of those when I go back to why do you need a blockchain to do that? You don't. There are at least five other ways in which you can do that. But the fact is it wasn't available and it's available today. So that idea that the first transfer of value in a interoperable wallets between Venmo and PayPal was a Bitcoin transaction <laughs> blows my mind. It is something that has been in payments for, again, 20 years, that the first movement of value that you can make between interoperable wallets has been done on crypto rails. It's just one example of that DeFi mullet that, that you guys referred to about things that are where we are abstracting the complexity from the consumer. Mm -hmm. I think that if you go back to the early days of, of internet, Yes, you have to understand TCP IP and a bunch of other things to be able to interact with it in the same way that you need to be relatively savvy around the protocols and the wallets and the infrastructure to be able to interact in, in crypto today. For mainstream adoption, we will need to have solutions that abstract that complexity from the mainstream user. And I think that this is a first good example of that. Jose, this goes back to what you were saying earlier about just the idea of network theory. And when you have open public permissionless networks, the individuals, the users on those networks can grow at a very large scale. And the fact that Bitcoin was able to solve this problem of interoperability between two siloed payment systems naturally, emergently, is pretty cool. And you know, goes down to the very essence of like why these technologies like excite me and Ryan. And I'm wondering if on the other side of things, because PayPal is treating these as technologies that can provide utility to the company to increase its value, 
how does the crypto industry compare to the non-crypto industry that are, is also on the frontier technical world of payments. And that comes in the world of like CBDCs or any other innovations that we just aren't familiar with because we only pay attention to the crypto industry because we're crypto people. So like, how do we stack up as like service providers to PayPal? Like how are we doing? We need to remember that the crypto industry has been around for a relatively short amount of time. Mm -hmm. So the plumbing and the wiring and many of the things, it is still in progress, but in the short seven years that I've been involved with the space, we have gone a long, long way. So things like, obviously there are implications on KYC and AML concerns for the industry. We're in a much better place now with the emergence of transaction monitoring platforms and, and the likes of Elliptic and TRM and Synalysis and others. In terms of the fiat to crypto connectivity, we are in a better place than we use now. We compete in the market with many other companies that are providing on ramps there. And we should have even more. And obviously, and I'm sure that we will talk later on about regulation. It is still very early days. I think that we need to remember that. And, and again, you're talking about 100 million wallets worldwide. You're not talking about billions yet. And sometimes people get a little bit frustrated with the state of development. I think that we have gone enormous distance in the last 12 years. Are we fully there yet? No, of course we are not. There are, there are solutions that would be needed for better KYC and decentralized identity and self-sovereign identity and that will emphasize that adoption going forward. But we are at a place where the numbers that we manage, if you look at surveys for the US strictly, they will tell you that I think it's a little bit more than 20% of US adults have bought or sold crypto at some moment in time. And that is consistent with the numbers that we get from our internal surveys. We have so many users in the US that I would say that probably at this stage, the PayPal population is a decent sample of the general US population. So when you have more than 20% of the adult base that has used crypto, you have about 50% of the adult base that has engaged with the stable coins. We have 12% of the population of the adult population who has engaged with NFTs. You start to be on the cusp of, usually when you go beyond 10%, you are starting to get beyond the early adopters. And you're starting to be, you're not mainstream yet, but you start to get close to mainstream. So we need to remember these early days, the infrastructure is much better than it used to be. I'm actually optimistic about regulation. I think that what we see going on in places from Europe to Singapore, to Japan, to Hong Kong, to UAE, there is a drive toward more clarity. Are we there yet? No, we're not there yet to the full extent. But again, we are all playing the long game here. And I think that we are making a ton of progress. It's funny you say that you give those stats around usage, because if you'd believe some regulators, I'm not going to name any right now, or some politicians, they would have you believe that no one actually uses crypto, that there is no use case, except the use case for scamming other people. What can you say about that, Jose? Yeah. What do you say to that charge? Crypto is useless. Look, uh, as we said before, you cannot argue with proof of existence. So if there is 120 billion in stable coins out there, that is proof of existence. If you have an asset class that is worth more than 1 trillion, that is proof of existence. So there is utility that people are using that for different things. And again, in terms of how pervasive the penetration is, it's not 8% of a population, but it's 20%. I don't think the other thing that we like to say is that when reality does not respond to your model, what is wrong is not reality, right? <laughs> so the industry is here to stay and is being adopted. I don't think that genies go back into bottles. I just want to take a quick peek under the hood of how this actually works at PayPal. So users can buy and store crypto. They can also send crypto. Yep. Where are the assets actually sourced from? So who is selling PayPal 
users their crypto assets? And then who's also doing the custodianship? And how did PayPal choose its custodian? I think Jose keeps it on his ledger, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, we are regulated, obviously, in a number of states. We have a virtual currency license out of New York. We were the first company, I think, that we had a conditional bit license that then was became full bit license. We work with several companies in the space for liquidity and custody. We have a long-standing relationship with Paxos out of New York. And we are investors in the company too. And we do custody with several custodians. The relationship with the consumer is with us. So when somebody's engaging with crypto on the PayPal platform, their user agreement is signed with us. And then we work with different providers in the background. Okay, so if Ryan's got a Venmo account and I got a Venmo account and I send Ryan Ether from my Venmo account to his Venmo account, does it make an update on the Ethereum blockchain? Does it make an on-chain transfer or is that a transfer inside of the Venmo silo? If you're doing that inside Venmo to Venmo, Venmo to PayPal, uh -huh. that is an internal transfer. So okay. we don't need to go on-chain to do that. And actually is something that... Is that also means that the user will not be paying network fees for that. Sure. And that is transfer. Actually, if you think about it, we were talking earlier about lightning payments. If you think about it now that you can move, you can do fast, free, instant transfers of Bitcoin between Venmo and Venmo wallets and between Venmo and PayPal wallets. So it doesn't go on chain. There's no need for that to go on chain. If you're transferring to your MetaMask wallet or you're sending to a ledger wallet, then that will go on chain. Okay. And then it took a while to get to this point of actual external transfers, I would assume because PayPal is a squeaky clean business that doesn't want to offend any regulators. That's why it took a longer amount of time. But can you just explain the trials and the hurdles that PayPal had to get over to actually enable outbound external transfers of crypto out of the silos of PayPal and Venmo to external wallets? Like, How hard was that? Yeah, I think thanks for that, David, and thanks for giving us so much credit. <laughs> Part of the reason that it took a while is because it is just hard to do. Obviously, when you enable on-chain transfers, is the first time that you are directly interacting with the permissionless side of it, right? Mm -hmm. So it's easier. And we wanted to walk before we run. So it took a while for us to build kind of the wall garden experience at the beginning, the buy, hold, and sell, but also to build the skill base and the talent base and get our regulatory charters. Remember that... We acquired a company in Tel Aviv called uh, Curve that was active in, in custody and multi-party computation. And now that team still represents probably around half of our engineering base. But of the team, if you think about it, we have in three years built a team that is more or less 50% of them, people who came, who were already at PayPal and new payments inside out, but didn't really have the crypto skill base. And the other 50 came either from acquisitions or from hiding from industry. We had to get the regulatory plumbing and licensing in place. We had to get node operations, infrastructure, connectivity to permissionless blockchains, transaction monitoring systems. It just takes a while. I don't want to blame the regulators for how long it took because it was not on them. It wasn't us. We just needed to build that, that muscle. And then when we were comfortable with it, say, hey, now we can open the tab and go and engage with, with the permissionless side. Jose, you mentioned earlier that there's $120 billion in stable coins out there. And I think David and I just checked the charts earlier in the week. And, you know, that's about right. We got USDC, we've got Tether, we've got, you know, Paxos, we've got some of the smaller ones as well. Since you are a payments expert, and I think maybe at some level a stable coin expert, if you extrapolate the term stable coin to mean like digital dollars or something like that, can you give us your thoughts on how we get to a trillion dollars, hmm. right? So one, 120 billion right now, and that's actually down. So for bankless listeners, I mean, what the peak was like 160, 
170, something like that, billion. And now we're down a little bit. I don't think it's fatal, but clearly we've got more use cases to generate for stable coins before we can get to a trillion dollars in market cap. What do you think it's going to take? I think it would take two or three things. And it's funny that you bring back the one trillion because I remember I was asked what was my five-year out view and my five-year out view was among other things, one trillion of outstanding stable coins out there doing transactions. I think we get there. I think it will probably take three to five years to get there. And it requires a bunch of things. First of all, most of that 120 billion today, they are used for crypto trading, institutional trading, getting it for crypto capital markets, if you want. That will grow with the market. So obviously crypto markets have not been extremely active over the last 18 months. When the market comes back, that will drive additional activity. And that's one chunk of it. I don't think that will get us to one trillion. I think that what will get us to one trillion is the other side of it, which is going back to your analogy of the DeFi mullet. It will mean that you start to use that for payments, which is again, our charger and in all those four or five verticals that I think that they are ripe for adoption. But also I think that it will require that they get used more broadly on traditional asset management. One aspect where I think that actually the US is leading and where I'm seeing a ton of innovation is the asset management space. If you follow what the likes of Wisdom Tree and Franklin Templeton and BlackRock and others are doing, I think that in that combination of traditional capital markets and tokenization of assets, I think that's going to be another big driver of assets under management and assets under custody for stable coins. I think that at some point in time, you top out the crypto trading side of it. There's going to be some stability there. Whether that takes us to 150 or 200 or 300, I don't know. I don't think that it takes us to 1 trillion. I believe that for that, you need a commerce and traditional capital markets activity. It's interesting if you see in the European Union, obviously it passed MICA, their legislation, their framework for crypto markets recently. And you are starting to see over the last month, probably I've seen three or four companies that are making progress in, in Euro-denominated stable coins. Really? And of those who are out there, and USDC has an Euro-denominated coin. And if you look at the market cap and the assets on chain compared to the USD base, they are not that big. And the reason for that is that Euro-denominated stable coins and in general, local currency-denominated stable coins are going to be more useful for mainstream use cases, for payments again, and, and others. And I'm sure that if I was working in media, I would bring you a bunch of use cases in media. I just know my space. But I think that we need to, for that trillion, which again is the goal that I think we should be striving for, we need to get into that mainstream side of the economy. Can you divvy up that payment segment for us real quick in, in terms of stable coins? Okay, like what kind of payments are we talking about, right? So I already use stable coins for a lot of payments, I would say on-chain transaction type payments or sort of investing type payments or, you know, just everybody in crypto. I mean, we pay for things in crypto as a company. Bankless is a crypto media company and we pay people mm -hmm. in USDC. So we're starting to use it, but we might be on the early adopter side of the curve here. But when you think about payments, are we talking about like buying a coffee at Starbucks? Is it kind of that level consumer payments? Or are you talking about like, integrating a pay with USDC on Amazon and kind of e-commerce checkout? Or are we talking about like bigger merchant B2B type payments, you know, settlement types of payments, like, you know, big dollar amounts? I'm sure you have a much more elegant way of dividing up the payments segment than I just gave you. So please do not feel constrained <laughs> to my categories of things. But yeah, where's it going to come from, the payments? I think you're going to see that on the places where the current plumbing for payments is not 
the best tool in the box. And that usually is in a couple of places. One of them is anything that has to do with micropayments or high fluidity of payments. If you are transacting in traditional fiat payment instruments, they really struggle with high speed, very low denomination in amount. If you're trying to do transaction, if you're trying to pay a transaction that is cents of a dollar with your credit card, it gets very clunky and there are usually, there are minimum fees. And for that, it's not a very good use case. That's why I keep going back to things like gaming. If you're buying a skin in Fortnite, and the way you do it today is that you need to top up a wallet and just have money left there that you're going to use when you're in game. If you want to do digital goods at high speed in game without getting in the way of the experience, that's one place where you will start to see things like that. The other aspect is the other extreme. I don't believe that for multi-million dollar payments, the system is that broken. If you are a large enterprise that is paying suppliers, there is enough in the banking system and the corresponding banking system to get that done cost efficiently. But if you are a mid-sized merchant that is doing wire transfers and the wire transfer is costing them 50 to $100, and you can only do it Monday to Friday, nine to five during banking hours, and all of a sudden you can do something that has instant settlement and is dollar denominated and works 24 seven, you're just gonna go there. So I believe that the next bunch of adoption, and there are companies that are already working toward that. I think that companies like Fireblocks, which I have a ton of respect for, they're starting to get into that B2B enablement. Initially for companies like yours, as you were saying, crypto native companies that are very used to doing that, but more and more, one good thing about the B2B side is that companies are very rational actors. So you put something in there, again, going back to the ideology or lack thereof, you say, you're going to show me something in which I can reduce my cost of payments by a multiple of X, I'm going to use it. And, and I'm just going to use the best tool for the job. So I think that you will see a lot of that into those extreme cases. Very, very small payments. And B2B payments, one aspect where I have friends that are starting to use USDC and other stable coins is payouts. So companies here in the Valley that have developers in different parts of the world and trying to get that money out to those developers, the banking channels that are just not the best tool for that. And I believe that we will see more of it, which is helpful because again, that's gonna drive volume faster than the retail use cases will. Arbitrum One is pioneering the world of secure Ethereum scalability and is continuing to accelerate the Web3 landscape. Hundreds of projects have already deployed on Arbitrum One, producing flourishing DeFi and NFT ecosystems. With the recent addition of Arbitrum Nova, gaming and social dApps like Reddit are also now calling Arbitrum home. Both Arbitrum One and Nova leverage the security and decentralization of Ethereum and provide a builder experience that's intuitive, familiar, and fully EVM compatible. On Arbitrum, both builders and users will experience faster transaction speeds with significantly lower gas fees. With Arbitrum's recent migration to Arbitrum Nitro, it's also now 10 times faster than before. Visit Arbitrum.io where you can join the community, dive into the developer docs, bridge your assets, and start building your first dApp. With Arbitrum, experience Web3 development the way it was meant to be. Secure, fast, cheap, and friction-free. Learning about crypto is hard, until now. Introducing MetaMask Learn, an open educational platform about crypto, Web3, self-custody, wallet management, and all the other topics needed to onboard people into this crazy world of crypto. MetaMask Learn is an interactive platform with each lesson offering a simulation for the task at hand, giving you actual practical experience for navigating Web3. The purpose of MetaMask Learn is to teach people the basics of self-custody and wallet security in a safe environment. And while MetaMask Learn always takes the time 
time to define Web3-specific vocabulary, it is still a jargon-free experience for the crypto-curious user. Friendly, not scary. MetaMask Learn is available in 10 languages with more to be added soon, and it's meant to cater to a global Web3 audience. So, are you tired of having to explain crypto concepts to your friends? Go to learn.metamask.io and add MetaMask Learn to your guides to get onboarded into the world of Web3. Immutable is at the forefront of Web3 gaming, on a mission to bring digital ownership to every player, offering the world's best games and game development platform. Immutable lets game builders and players focus on great gaming experiences. So, build your next Web3 game on easy mode with Immutable's leading full-stack Web3 gaming platform. Its built-in UX features, like the Immutable Passport, are designed for games to scale to the next billion players coming to Web3. With Immutable, players can sign up with an email, pay with a credit card, and experience a frictionless purchase flow inside of games. So discover your next favorite game and explore a network of 150 games building on Immutable, including such titles as Gauze Unchained, Guilds of Guardians, Illuvium, Ember Sword, and Metalcore. So join Web3's largest ecosystem of games and players. Build, play, and connect at immutable.com. Jose, by the way, since you mentioned it, I am very interested in this gaming payments kind of use case, right? And so you mentioned like Fortnite dollars, or I think they're called V-Bucks, right? Mm -hmm. So what is a V-Buck? <laughs> by the way, like what would be backing a V-Buck? Is that just money on, you know, Epic Games balance sheet somewhere? Or is that like one-to-one -one mapped into an account? SQL database. That's not like a stable coin in any way, or it's not like the same as a PayPal dollar, is it? And by the way, it's probably similar to like Starbucks gift card and that kind of class of units. Maybe you could share some insight because I've never asked an expert this question. I couldn't answer that either. I think that's a good question for the Fortnite folks on Epic Games. One of the things that I see not only about buying those skins in the games, if you think of, and it's not only Fortnite, it's Roblox and Minecraft, places where actually you have developers that are building in that ecosystem and they get compensated in that digital currency of that space by saying, hey, what do I do with VBAC now? I need dollars. I need to make payroll. I need to pay my developers outside. So again, how do you build the value that has been created in one ecosystem? How do you make that into value that can be deployed in a different ecosystem is something where gaming is such a fascinating scenario. Gaming is fascinating in many aspects for the computing geeks in the audience. Actually, a lot of the innovation that happens in computing happens in gaming, because if you're trying to do instant rendering for millions of concurrent users, the computing challenge from that is actually very, very, very demanding. And I think that we learn a lot from the gaming side. I'm not deflecting your question or what is back in a VBAC. I just don't know. No, I get it. There's nothing back. The skins it's, are back well, in a VBAC. Well, it's just probably an entry on the balance sheet, you know, basically. And like, I guess not even one, a balance sheet, it's just one a big difference, mm. right? One big difference is that obviously uh, VBUCs aren't interoperable. And I'm sure Epic Games would not be able to get away with paying its employees in VBUCs. <laughs> be, uh, no. They want money that is useful outside of the, you know, the Epic ecosystem. Mm -hmm. But go ahead, David. Jose, if PayPal is interested in gaming, this implies that there's going to need to be networks that PayPal integrates with that aren't the Ethereum Layer 1 because games and the high transaction fees of the Ethereum Layer 1 just aren't going to go together. Mm -hmm. There's other networks out there. There's Ethereum Layer 2s. I know Tron, actually, interestingly, has been used for a lot of payment velocity as well. Solana is a low-fee blockchain. And also, since PayPal is now integrated inside of MetaMask, well, MetaMask is integrated with all the Ethereum Layer 2s. So I'm wondering if there's a known strategy here at PayPal with how to integrate and which networks to integrate with. How's PayPal playing the network integration game? Yeah. So when we started to be in the space, we were saying, well, you have to be present in the Bitcoin ecosystem and the Ethereum ecosystem. Right. Just There's no way around that. And as I said, we were very clearly in the game deciding there will not be 
a PayPal protocol. We're not in the game of having a private protocol. We want, we have a first principle that is, hey, developers tell us where to go. Mm. We don't tell developers where to go. We will follow and we monitor developer activity and, and we keep an eye on what's happening in the market and what is getting adoption. No PayPal chain then in the future. Pay chain. Is what you're saying. I don't see a PayPal chain in the future, no. Because think about it. Why would that make sense? If we wanted a permission environment, we have a permission environment already. So PayPal is already, if, you, if both sides of the transaction have PayPal accounts, then we have been doing that for 20 years. If you think about reliability and scalability and throughput and, and all those things, I'm trying to figure out, and I don't have an opinion yet, about whether we go to a world of a multiplicity of layer ones, and they're going to be... I don't think that we're going to see 300 layer ones that are relevant, but I'm trying to figure out what is the maximum number of layer ones that get a scale. I think we're all trying to figure that one yeah. out. <laughs> or, or we go to a world in which there are layer layer twos on two or three protocols that have different flavors. The good thing is, again, is we don't have a horse on that race and we follow the developer side. When we were talking about gaming, for instance, we have been paying a ton of attention to what the folks at Aptos are doing, and we have been participating with them, and they have decided that gaming is one of the verticals where they want to be a part of. We have been looking at Solana, and we have been looking at others, and I'm sure that we have this conversation six months from now. The innovation in the system will have generated three other protocols, either layer ones or twos, that we should be discussing. See, David, I love this. PayPal has no tribes, right? Right? They yeah. just—they're like, we're the cheap payments, the yep. secure, fast, and efficient. We'll go there. The devs and the users. Yep. Okay, so that's the network side of things. The other interesting, I think, point of conversation is that PayPal, when you pay integrate payments and stable coins on Ethereum, you're actually not that far away from financial activity, right? There's USDC. But then there's CUSDC, which is a yield-bearing version of USDC inside a compound that is also just another ERC-20 token. And so the question is, since PayPal is so proximate to DeFi stuff, in addition to payments, would we ever see a day where there's DeFi stuff, DeFi activities, either like savings technology, yield, alternative assets? Is that something that is on PayPal's radar? Or is it mainly going to stick to these networks for their payment and money services? I would say that as of now, we are definitely more interested in the payment and transactional side of things, and we are an enabler to the ecosystem. I don't know where it will go in the future. I don't know where the regulatory side of things is going to settle on the staking side and, and others and the yield generating part of it. One of the things that I have seen with a ton of interest is how some of these yield bearing instruments are now being driven by a tokenization of money market funds and, and, and the like, which obviously are something that is in the, in the province of broker dealers and, and the like. I don't know where it's going to go. I think that for the time being, we are very focused on the payment side and we will explore and see what happens. But our focus very much now is payments. We're not trying. Remember that our crypto product inside PayPal and Venmo lives inside an app that does many other things as well. So we need to be very discerning about what we add because you don't want to have a mammoth app that takes forever to load. That's very cool, Jose. I think this is part one, really, which is what's PayPal doing in the space? And like the TLDR that I'm getting out of this is a lot and it's exciting. And this is a front door to crypto for a lot of users who aren't listening to Bankless right now and are scared to hold their own private keys. And this is a you know a great way to get them into the ecosystem. So that's exciting. Very cool. I want to move the conversation. And I would add, Ryan, not, not only that, I think that what we have learned is that this is definitely that public, but we are finding more and more that there is a more sophisticated public that really likes that connectivity and the easy in and out 
And the protections, I think that we are still the only company that I know of in the US that we provide a warranty where if somebody gets access to your account, we will provide up to $50,000 of protection if somebody gets into your account and takes your crypto out. I think that we're just, one of the things that we like to think is that we are raising the bar in terms of customer service in this space, both for casual and for more sophisticated users. Yeah, I think that's important. And I hope the former FTX users heard that, right? There is some guarantee for their accounts. I think crypto could use that leveling up from traditional finance who's done that well for a while. All right, well, let's get to kind of the part two of this, which is interesting. Now we're going to we're gonna zoom out for a second, okay? So I know you also have some interesting perspectives and takes on this old banking system that we have right now, both internationally and then in the U.S., and maybe the future role that stablecoins and CDBCs might play in that, in addition to crypto, which we've talked about so far. You wrote a paper, co-wrote a paper, called Payments and the Evolution of Stablecoins and CDBCs in the Global Economy. And it starts like this. The U.S. payment system has proven to be vibrant, adaptable, and innovative, and yet... It has also revealed areas in need of urgent improvement. I think I'll paraphrase that for you, for us rather. The banking system is kind of broke right now. In fact, I think you say as much later in the paper. I'm curious your perspective on this, and let's broaden this to what role CDBCs might play, what role stablecoins might play in this. But when you look at kind of payments and the banking system today, what's broken about banking in the United States? Yeah, so a ton to unpack there. And I grew up in Europe and I did a lot of working payments in places like Latin America and others. And now I've been in the US for 12 years and I remain a student of the payment system and regulation in the US because it is fascinating. If you look at what is probably unique about the US, in most other places, payment systems are established at the national level and even at the supranational level. If you're in Europe, there is a the SEPA environment and there is connectivity between different countries. The US evolved in a, in a different way in terms of payments. So payments are regulated at the state level. And that actually has been a fantastic thing. One thing that the state by state setup provides is what I think the Justice Brandeis called the 50 laboratories of freedom. <laughs> so there is a ton of innovation that will happen at the state level and different states will try different things. And then the things that work will get adopted and things that don't work will kind of fade away. And if you don't have an environment in which you have that state by state level, the innovation that has happened here, you see, you, even in our space on the crypto side, you saw New York a few years ago coming up with their virtual currency framework. And then you saw Wyoming coming up with a special purpose depository institution. And you are seeing now things that are appearing in Illinois and Louisiana and other places. So that is fantastic in terms of the effervescence of the system and the innovation. One thing that that setup is not really conducive to is that once that you have decided what works, that system is not very conducive to robust infrastructure that rolls out to the whole of the country. And you see that in probably in two aspects. On the payment space, we have been talking in the industry about FedNow for quite a while, which is this real-time payment systems that the Federal Reserve launched this year. There has been an alternative to that already in the market. It's called RTP from the Clearinghouse, which is a private company that has been providing that. That is a very welcome progress there because what that will do is be able to settle payments in real time, which is something that has been available in many markets outside the US for a long, long while. What is the status quo in the US if it's not real time? So if you're using the traditional banking rails, most of the transactions that you have, the settlement time is going to take 
two to three days, probably, you're using traditional mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. Think about, for instance, the use of checks. Paper checks is, quite frankly, it's mind-boggling that we are still using paper checks. Paper checks are expensive to process. They take forever to settle. Think about this. I was discussing with someone the other day. We have planes in the sky transporting physical checks from banks to, to clearing <laughs> centers. So it is, it takes days. It doesn't make sense that you are in an environment and where- That's a US thing, right? Other countries don't do paper checks so much anymore. Is that correct? Most countries don't do much uh, checks. There are others out there that still use them. There are a few in Europe that still use them, but it's definitely something that is less common than, than it used to be for good reason, because there are just better ways to do that. If you see payment innovations like ourselves, but also Folks like Cell, most of them, Cell is run by a consortium of banks, and they are moving toward that type of faster settlement for smaller payments. So I guess that to your point about what can be improved, there is a need to balance that innovation that happens at the state level with that, I guess, that the robustness and the speed of the infrastructure. Would you say that that is what the arc of banking and payments are? Because that would fit in with the idea that like technology always increases in speed. Just like, what is the arc of payments. Well, they go faster. They settle faster. Settlement assurances go faster. That is the arc, right? If that is true, how far behind is America in that arc? How much faster are payments settled elsewhere outside of America versus inside of America? I think the U.S. will get there. You know, the moment that you have the, those real-time settlement mechanisms, you're going to move to T plus zero, so basically same-day settlement, which is what you can get doing in other markets. I think that is interesting when you look at the payment space, going back to what we were discussing earlier about why do you need X if you have Y? I think there's a bit of a fallacy on why do you need stable coins if you have bank deposits? Why do you need crypto payments if you have FedNow? I think that all those things should coexist because there are some things that you can do in one way that you will not be able to do in, in other. For instance, FedNow and the real-time settlement is a fantastic thing that should happen as soon as possible, should have happened in the past. We should get it as fast as we possibly can. It is still mostly going to be used for interbank settlement payments, meaning you still need to have a bank account to be able to benefit from, mm. from that. Mm -hmm. Same thing with what I think is the fallacy that pitches stablecoins against CBDCs. Some, some people are saying, and you see both sides of the equation in, in countries that are more pro-CBDC are saying, hey, if we have a CBDC, why do you need a stablecoin? In countries that are more pro-stablecoin, they will say, let's go stablecoins and, and forget CBDCs. I do believe that that is, again, that's a bit of a fallacy. And I do believe that in the end, you are going to see stablecoins that are backed by CBDCs. And it looks a little bit, again, as turtles all the way down. But if you think about it, it actually makes sense. Because if you think about a CBDC, what a CBDC is, is a digital claim on central bank money. So and what a CBDC I don't think is going to be is a digital currency that is deployed on a permissionless protocol like Ethereum. So very likely you're going to see ERC20 tokens that are backed by a digital euro or by a digital pound or by a CBDC. And to your question, and Brian, I love your insistence on hey, what is backing this? There is no reason why a CBDC could not back a stablecoin and that the stablecoin provides that interoperable layer on top of it. So the difference between a CBDC is central bank money. So basically it's a claim against the full faith and credit of the state that issues the CBDC. A stablecoin is in essence programmable e-money. And then you see the banking industry talking about tokenized deposits, which are a good thing too, 
But again, it's a tokenized deposit. So it is commercial bank money that has the commercial bank money risk associated with that institution. All those are pieces of the puzzle that I do believe that will coexist and will be useful for different things. But also I believe that you need to have a version of digital cash. If you, if you look at, and this is not a US only uh, comment, when you look at the world, people use less and less cash. And again, and cash is expensive to handle. But if you're a central bank and you're looking at one of your mandates that you have is on the one side financial stability and also financial inclusion, you need to be able to make sure that people have access to the financial system. In a world without cash and without CBDCs and without stable coins, the only way that you can get access to the financial system is through the banks. And I live in Silicon Valley and three hours from my house in Silicon Valley, there is a county Sierra County and getting into the, the Sierra Nevada, where there is not one banking branch. Hmm. So this concept of the US and other regions of banking deserts, of places where there is a lack of banking infrastructure, and there are probably good reasons for it. But we cannot be just reliant on having access to a bank account. We cannot be just reliant on having access to a physical bank branch. Hmm. In your report, Jose, there was a stat which surprised me. Even 30% of Americans with a household income under 30K reported making all or almost all of their weekly purchases in cash. These are some of the unbanked members of society that are still kind of using cash. I mean, for myself personally, I keep a $20 bill on me just because there's some toll or some parking garage that's only going to take it. But aside from that, you know, $20 bill that I always keep on me and use in case of emergency, it's almost like the break glass in case of emergency, I got my 20. Mm -hmm. I don't use cash in my everyday life. I use crypto or I use kind of the traditional banking system. But that is not true for a large number of unserved members of society who maybe aren't close to a local bank or just don't have access to it for one reason or another. I remember we had a guy by the name of Richard Turin on the podcast who wrote a book and studies actually China's central bank digital currency system. And he wrote this book called Cashless. And, you know, being in the crypto space, obviously, we have some natural resistance against that type of setup, right? Surveillance state. CBDC is a bad word. CDBC can be a bad word in this space, right? Well, that means, you know, the government can basically freeze your accounts tied to a social credit score, inflate it away into nothing. Where's the autonomy? Where's this, you know, civic rights, all of these things. His counter argument to that was like, China needed to bank the unbanked. And this, quite frankly, was the fastest way to do it. So put a mobile app on their phone and they can use digital cash, this new Chinese central bank digital currency, in remote areas all across the country rather than having to go physical presence to some bank and rely on their, you know, the crappy banking app user experience. So his argument was basically China has banked millions of people, maybe, you know, given China's size, tens of millions or hundreds of millions of people using this kind of technology. I didn't fully agree with that argument, but I found elements of it somewhat compelling. What do you think is like the best design for a system moving forward? Do you like China's design? Do you like some of the proposals coming out in kind of the EU? What's like the best digital cash design society. I feel like you may be indicating a blend of things, but I'm curious, what do you think it actually looks like? I can give you a few principles that I think that make sense. And the implementations will vary depending on the country you are. The experiment or the experience in China is fascinating. The Chinese financial system, as you guys were saying, has some particularities on what is bank versus non-bank versus payment apps and the like, which is quite unique. 
the experience in India has been fascinating as well, because the India stack went in a different way. They were saying is, hey, let's get digital IDs for everyone. And on the back of those digital IDs, then we can build a unified payment system and we can have financial institutions that are payment banks, meaning that they are not involved in credit activity. Jose, I don't know much about this actually. So everyone, not everyone, but a portion of society in India has now a digital ID, which would be like almost like a digital passport, passport of some type. Yeah. So there is, India went with a very broad ranging effort on an identity protocol called Adar, where they went and basically they got a digital IDs issued for most of the country. And they combined that with something that is called UPI, which is a unified payment interface, which means that there is a standard for bank-to-bank account, bank account-to-bank account payments. So that provides a solid infrastructure on top of which people can build payments and identity applications because they have that common layer of payments and they wish to identify. The other interesting experiment has been really successful, has been PICS in Brazil, where the Brazilian Central Bank implemented a way to basically do free payments from bank account to bank account because there was a very large segment of the population who did not have debit cards or or credit cards. Specifically on your point on CBDCs, there are the hot topics of debate on CBDCs. One of them is what you're saying is, what are the surveillance implications? What are the the privacy requirements? Which is the information that the state should have or should not have about my monetary interactions? The other aspect is what I said about in terms of inclusion, what happens If a bank would not give me a bank account, I still need to have access to the economy and I need something that is an instrument that is issued by the central bank. And yet another aspect is this difference about commercial bank money and central bank money and the different risk that that has. There has been, I think it's relatively old old in the sense of a couple of years ago, three years ago, the Bank of England issued a paper with their initial framework where they were talking about a two-tier system, meaning that the, the way they were looking at at a digital pound basically said, hey, the central bank will issue the currency and will keep the ledger. But the distribution will be done by financial institutions, banks are non-banks, which will have the apps with which the users will interact. And that has a number of advantages. First of all, it limits the information at the user level that goes back to the central bank. So it helps uh, mitigate those concerns about surveillance and privacy. And on the other side, meets the consumers where they are today and still gets to distribute that. I think that that is a good construct. When you get into the weeds, we are years away from deployment of CBDCs because then you need to start to think of things like what is the off-chain problem? So what happens if you have a central bank money that resides in your app and the phone network is down? You still need to be, how do you version control of the database when people are interacting with their phones and then the network comes back up and how does that money movement? There are... Once that you get into the technical side of it, there are very thorny issues that I think will be solved, but will be solved over a number of years. Jose, let me ask you a question. It'll take a while for the US to create a central bank digital currency. Why not just skip all that and just use stable coins? I mean, we have the infrastructure on crypto right now. True, a couple of years ago, we couldn't scale it in terms of you know payment networks and low transaction per second and high fees, but we're getting there now. It seems like we have the infrastructure to essentially make a collection of stable coins the digital dollar for the United States. Why don't they just let the private market handle this? Of course, this would be a, you know, Jeremy Allier and Circle's argument. Why don't you just let the private sector take care of it? That's what American private sector does very well, is solves thorny technical problems. And we've got the tech, we could do this. What do you think of that approach? I think that there is not 
the question you need to ask because there is not really a choice. I don't think that we need to say, hey, let's skip CBDCs and focus on stable coins. I think that the right question is, I don't know if it's a question as much as an assertion. Let's have stable coins. We need to have stable coins in the US. There should be private stable coins that are fiat backed, that are well backed, that are regulated, that are safe, that are secure, that people can use. And let's have the conversation about CBDCs. It's not one or the other, both coexist. I could very well see, as I was saying earlier, that you have a stable coin that is backed by a CBDC. What we cannot do is to wait for stable coins until we have CBDCs, because then you're talking multi years and then the ship has sailed. I don't think it's an either or. To the urgency of what Jeremy was saying, I fully agree. We need a framework for stable coins in the US and it is important. If you look at, we were talking earlier, you were saying, Ryan, and, and you're absolutely right, that volume of stable coins has come down a little bit. The volume of USD issued and USD denominated stable coins has come down by quite a bit. If you look at from the beginning of the year until now, I'm speaking of, from memory, but I think it's like 20 billion in USD issued stable coins that has disappeared either because it has been redeemed or it has moved to other places. And I think that, and while stable coins that are outside of the US have continued to increase in, in volume, I think that is, there is a pressing issue on clarifying the framework for stable coins in the US. And you're seeing that in the legislative action and the discussions that are happening in Congress right now. So I don't think it is either or between stable coins and CBDCs. We need stable coins and we need them now. And then we need to have the process and the conversation of how would a digital dollar look like if that's the decision that the country makes. But yeah, I certainly agree with that. One of our theories for why stable coins are down in terms of total market cap is that there's a new yield farm in town and that's called US Treasuries. And it's paying you know 5% and higher. So people are uh, <laughs> going over there. That is the new yield farm. It's not on chain. So maybe there's some of that as well. Jose, you've been very kind with your time. This has been a fascinating, fantastic conversation. I just have a couple more thoughts to close our questions for you. Mm -hmm. And the first is this around regulatory. So crypto in the year of 2023, we almost, we can't do a crypto podcast without talking about regulatory because it very much feels like in the wake of 2022, the eye of Sauron is sort of like looking directly at crypto now and all of its malice is focused on crypto. It feels that way anyway. It's probably not as worse as it seems from your vantage point, and you guys have dealt with regulators from the very beginning, I'm sure the very beginning of PayPal, there were some interesting conversations with regulators and could you really do it? And there was a time where you were sort of the startup trying to get like regulators on board with what you're doing. From your vantage point, what do things look like in crypto? Is this really a you know, sort of a um, a very bad regulatory environment. Do you see it improving? I'd just be interested in picking your brain. Any thoughts you have on regulation with respect to crypto? Yeah, and I'm going to... I might be a little bit of the contrarian here because I'm actually looking at the glass half full. So on the role of regulation, the way we think about this, and we have been thinking about this all the way through, is for crypto to get traction, you require access, you require utility, and you require the regulation in place. And we have been working on all those three spaces. And more like, one of the things that I've learned is that if you're working on something that is remotely relevant, more likely than not, it's going to be regulated. It is healthcare, financial services, education, energy, you name it. There's going to be a regulatory framework there, and, and there are good reasons for that. And I do think, and this might not sound very glass half full, but I do think that there is a risk, specifically in the US, that the US falls behind in digital currencies versus other regions. If you look at progress, we have been talking about 
MICA in Europe, but you see about the progress in FCA in the UK, you see about the progress in Japan, you see about the progress in Singapore, you see the progress in Hong Kong, you see the progress in the UAE. So the world is moving toward more regulatory clarity. And I do think that there is a risk of the US falling behind there. But when I look at the US, I think that there are a number of assets that are there that are getting, that are being put to use. First of all, as we said, we had the benefit of a few years of state level innovation and frameworks that have been tried and tested. I think that experience from New York, the experience from Wyoming and other places creates the substrate for saying, hey, we know what can work in the US. And on the other side, I think that we are seeing more urgency on the legislative side. There are a number of hearings that are going on, both in terms of stablecoin bills, but also in terms of market infrastructure. So I'm actually confident that we will see additional clarity in the US. I would be all doomy and gloomy if I were thinking that that is not the case, because I, again, I do believe that the environment that we have now is really complicated. It's driving consumers and companies offshore. And it creates a disadvantage. And we are seeing now, I don't know if you have been covering the situation in Europe lately, but there is a ton of appetite in places like France for crypto mm -hmm. companies to get established there. And I think some of the information from the fantastic developer report that Electric Capital issues shows that the US is losing crypto developers to other regions. We are seeing that. So again, I think that the situation is not the best. But I am optimistic that we will get to a good place. I think that it's clear that this is something, again, the proof of existence, the 120 billion, the trillion in assets, there is an acknowledgement that the industry is here, the industry is here to stay, and the framework has to be developed and has to be implemented. There's always the fight to fight the regulators in the ways that helps the crypto industry express itself and be built in the ways that we want to build this industry. But then also there's the same fight where crypto as an industry needs to make our products and tools more usable to companies like PayPal. And so, Jose, as we come to a close here, I'm wondering if I could just kind of pick your brain on that angle. I would imagine integrating with public blockchains, with Ethereum, with Bitcoin, wasn't the easiest, especially when you have a very high-quality app and a, a user base that expects quality. What could we have done? What could we do? What could the crypto industry do to make your lives easier? What were the big problems when it came with integrating Ethereum, stablecoins, Bitcoin into PayPal and Venmo? And just overall, like if we had the responsibility of making our product better to you and to PayPal, what should we look at first? Integrations, as you were saying, have to be easy at all levels, not only on the protocol side. I think that's something that is more available now than when we started four or five years ago is that way back then you had to do the infrastructure yourself. You had to operate the nodes. You had to do a lot of the relatively low level, if I can call it that way, that you don't use on traditional computing, you had to do it yourself because the providers were not there. I think that that ecosystem has developed now and you have folks who will handle node operations that will spin up nodes for you and manage them for you. I think that that helps. What I'm thinking is we started doing this four years ago and we put a ton of time and effort and engineering resources behind it because we were really convinced about it. I'm trying to figure out if you're a company that is less convinced than PayPal was, where you're saying, I'm going to do it, but if the lift is super heavy, then I'm not going to do it. How do we make that life easier? And I think that that infrastructure, folks are going to be concerned about the technical lift. And who do you use? And again, the moment that you start to have node operators and people that will handle the infrastructure and mempools and the like for you, that is getting there. It's getting easier. Also, the compliance side of things, both in terms of transaction monitoring and KYC has to be more clear. But I think that, again, the industry is in a better place than it was four years ago. I think that we need 
I can't point you to something where we need things that are not available in the market today, but we do need more providers of those. There has to be more competition in the market. In many of these places, would you just see two or three companies that are enterprise grade? And I believe that we need more entrants in that in the market. Jose, thank you for spending some time with us today. This has been a fascinating conversation. We appreciate you. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Bankless Nation, we got 400 million users in PayPal right now, in Venmo right now. It's our responsibility to get them into crypto, more excited about crypto. We need to build solutions that make them come into our ecosystem as well. So that's on us. And Jose here has done his part. Action items for you, of course. I want you to read the Payments and Evolution of Stablecoins paper. We talked about that. If you want to link to it, it'll be in the show notes. And of course, got to let you know, risks and disclaimers, none of this has been financial advice. Crypto is risky. You could lose what you put in, but we are headed west. This is the frontier. It's not for everyone, but we're glad you're with us on the bankless journey. Thanks a lot.